Hey everyone, welcome to Just Mental Health with Steph and M, the podcast where we discuss mental health through a social justice lens. I'm Emily. And I'm Stephanie. A quick disclaimer before we get started, we are mental health professionals, but this is not to be taken as professional advice. We are also aware that our privilege may cloud our perspective on some topics, and we not only welcome, but encourage you to message us with criticism and correction. Let's get started. Our small business shout out is Quentin Thomas Photography. This is Stephanie's cousin's husband, his photography business. So he does, let's see, he does weddings. Hang on one second. Weddings, engagement, family portraits. Uh, So a lot of like big events or like family gatherings are his specialty. He is proud to be an LGBTQ plus and diversity inclusive photographer. Everyone can feel safe in working with me is what his website says. Um, I'm looking at his website right now and his uh, pictures are really beautiful. Um, Oh yes, he's in Louisville, Kentucky. is an important point. Um, yeah, so I definitely recommend him. So you can contact him through his website, quintinthomasphotography.com. And now a quick ad. Okay, and we are back. So today we have a, another uh, special guest, Willie Gecker. She is a licensed clinical social worker. She works at a nonprofit social social service agency in Chicago um, where she provides mental health counseling. And she's a part of the labor movement in her agency. And she's here to talk with us today about the labor movement, um, especially as it relates to mental health workers and, and this field. So thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. So can you just tell us a little bit about what got you interested in this, in the labor movement and being a part of it? Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I was interested in the labor movement before I became a therapist. I worked in various like political jobs, community organizing, and I worked for a labor union for a short time. I was organizing adjunct faculty at university. So actually like some kind of some similarities, right? Like people who are overeducated and not making a lot of money, a lot of, you know, adjunct faculty, right? They might have a PhD and be just teaching one class here, one class there and not making a living wage. So kind of similar issues to what you might see in especially mental health workers and social service agencies. So yeah, I I went to social work school. I graduated in 2018 and I got a job at the place I interned at um, and I do outpatient counseling. And I walked into this job and found out that they had a union. However, (laughs) the union was so weak that not a lot of people really knew that there was a union or how to join and it was really inactive. So in 2018, my starting salary at this job um, where I was a therapist was $34,500, which is probably just about the lowest out of any of my classmates who finished grad school with me in Chicago. 
Um, and let's just, just want to interject real quick. <laughs> Lily has a master's degree at this point. Like she's mm-hmm. had very yeah. well educated, has a lot of training and that's yep. what she's making. Yep. I'd worked in social services before I went to grad school, then got my master's at university of Chicago, got hired on at a place where I had done an unpaid internship for a year for $34,000. So, right. So I'm looking around like, huh, does it, why, <laughs> why am I the lowest paid social worker in Chicago and we have a union. I don't think it has to be this way. So that's kind of the start of my journey. Um, I think both of you have worked in community mental health also. Yeah. (laughs) That's, I mean, a similar story. Like my first salary was also 34,000. Same. (laughs) So we're so underpaid in in this field, like when you're in community mental health, you know, private practice, it's a little better. Um, but yeah, it's really, yeah, really not cool. Especially the agency is nonprofit, mm-hmm. which is, I mean, nonprofits do a lot of good work for communities and they're very needed. And, but, you know, because of the low pay, you typically get a lot of very green on, you know, provisionally licensed therapists working there or people doing their internship there. Um, and there is, and then we might talk about this later, but there tends to be a lot of turnover um, in those jobs because of the, the low pay and the high, uh, the high caseloads and there's not a lot of benefits. Kind of what we're seeing just with other jobs like that, like you said, in education, that happens a lot too with teachers. So yeah, we, we can relate. Um, but you know, to have a, I don't think I've ever worked anywhere that had a, a union. So that's kind of unique, I guess, from where at least the culture I'm in, um, here in Southern Kentucky, unions are very much, they're very important. Um, with like the history of you know, Appalachian people, but it's mostly for like, uh, factory jobs. Like that's where they're, you know, that's where they are. And then it's like these other professionals, nobody ever talks about them. Nobody ever decides to unionize. So. Yeah. I mean, maybe we should even start with like what a union is. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious for you two, considering it sounds like neither of you have been in a union before. What comes to mind when you think of unions? Who are unions for? What do they do? If you know it all, (laughs) right? Like if you're told this is not a field where you're going to have a union, you, you might not think twice about it. I just know a, a lot of, you know, factory workers, like that's the people that I've known that have been in them have, have worked at a manufacturing you know, company, um, or, you know, did truck driving, um, or something like that with that, just a totally different profession. So, yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know anything about unions. Emily, when you think about about, like who is in a union, right? So Stephanie says she thinks about like factory workers, truck drivers, who do you think about when you think about? Yeah. Like, um, yeah, so similar. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. okay, I'll give a definition of a union. And then I'll also kind of talk about, right, what does it mean that, right, you are like 
two like educated people. And when you think of a union, you think of it's for those people and you do not think of your profession, right? So a union is really, it's just a collective of workers who come together to have a say in their working conditions. That's it. Mm-hmm. Right. That's like the very basis of it. And there's right. It can be like legally recognized. There's a lot of different things. We negotiate a contract. So there is legally bind, you know, a legally binding document that tells me here's what my pay should be. Here's what my sick time should be. Here's our parental leave policy. Here's our retirement benefits. You know, here's all of these different things about how our workplace works that affect my day-to-day life. So we have that written down and we do something that's called collective bargaining means, right? If you're applying for a job today, you might negotiate individually with your manager and you might go in blind, right? You don't know what the people who already work there make you, you know, some companies will tell you, here's the PTO we offer, here's the pay we offer, but you all, a lot of times you're going in blank, right? And you're just saying, well, I think I deserve to make a year. And maybe they say, well, we'll give you 65. And then you walk into the job and you find out other people are making 75, right? Like, you don't know, right? Stuff like that happens all the time. Doesn't matter what the exact numbers are, right? But you might individually negotiate, but if you're part of a union, then you collectively negotiate, which means that we're all negotiating together. So in 2019, I served on the um, bargaining team for my workplace. um, And I was, kind of put in charge of representing my coworkers in negotiating a contract that affected all of them. So that's a huge benefit. And it's a really big difference between like, I'm one person asking for something, not knowing who has what or what there is on the table to I'm a group of a hundred people or a thousand people all asking for the same thing together. Um, I think what's so funny about it. You know, America has a huge history of basically busting our unions, right? Like weakening labor policy, but it doesn't, right? We're at an all-time low. And we also are in a place where we, particularly in our field, see ourselves as like more professional or educated than what we think of as a union job, right? Like we think of a union job and we think of like you know, factories, things like that, right? Automobile factory, like all kinds of stuff. But what's important and was really helpful for me to recognize is two professions that are very similar to social work or mental health work are nursing and teachers, right? Feminized professions do require a high level of education or training, often master's degrees, some types of certifications, you need CEUs to keep up with it very professionalized, but also feminized helping professions. What's the difference between a social worker, a teacher, and a nurse? Teachers and nurses, they're unionized much more broadly than Mm. we would see for social workers or mental health workers or nonprofit workers, right? Mm. Like much, and I think, cause I'm in Chicago. So I'm gonna be looking at the Chicago Teachers Union, which is one of the strongest and most radical unions in the country and they're setting the bar, right? Like if I were starting out as a teacher in Chicago, I would not be making $34,000. <laughs> Probably be making like, I'm not sure exactly how much they make, right? It might be more mm-hmm. like 60 or 70, mm-hmm. right? And they have guaranteed raises. And then you look at the private schools in Chicago and they're like, well, we better, you know, Chicago public schools, they pay, you know, we better 
or a charter school, but we better pay, you know, and then the entire sector gets moved up. Mm-hmm. But so unions so- are good for even people not in unions <laughs> is what you're saying, because they're raising I- the bar. Cause like, well, mm-hmm. why would I work here when I can go to a public school, get in a union and make more? They're like, oh crap, we got to be competitive. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And you like looked at your imaginary walk. Oh crap, yeah, no, it's time crap. to get competitive. <laughs> and that's why mass unionization in our sector is really, really important because the entire field needs a lift, right? Like we all started at roughly the same salaries in our mm-hmm. jobs. And we were also in different cities, right? Mm-hmm. I might've been in a city where the cost of living is even higher, but right. It seems to have been universally accepted at least. in you know, we were all starting out like 2016, 17, 18 within those couple of years that $34,000 was an acceptable amount to pay someone with a master's degree providing mental health care. Cause we all worked in community mental health care settings, right? So that was the norm. And people accepted it. No one seems that, and people still do, right? People still don't really question it. And I think we need to ask why, why has that been normalized? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a very good question. I think, well, I think maybe you were going to get to this, but one of your points about it's, uh, it's a very feminized profession is part of that. Um, I think that's why we tend to make less than other master's degrees because it's majority women working in that field yeah and the like well I was gonna say like more a more like medically based helping profession is often seen as more um like more you know, compared to like a mental health or social service, social services, but then nurses are included in this, you know, in this list, but, you know, then you compare like nurses to doctors, you know, again, like nurses are more traditionally women. Um, so yeah, the fact that it's a femi- feminized fields, definitely. Yeah, I think it's part of it. And I think it's, there's this culture of martyrdom almost. Yeah. That like, we're just here to help other people. And at the same time, and this is where the contradiction is, there's this push towards professionalization, right? Like, it's like, you know, if I'm thinking like, oh, I want to start a private practice. Well, first of all, now I'm also a business owner and I have to do all that, right? But right, it's like, you've got to have a niche. You've got to have specialized training. You have to maintain your CEUs. You have to do all this licensure stuff. You, oh, you have to take the licensure exam. That costs $300 to do that. You know, it's, it's all of this stuff where it's like, on the one hand, oh, we're just here to help. We just care about the community, you know, blah, blah, blah. And also we're supposed to have a, deep level of knowledge and understanding and all of these things and be this highly professionalized people, right? Mm -hmm. Service providers. Yeah. Yeah. There is so much that goes that people don't know that goes into being a therapist. I mean, you know, we all have at least a master's degree, the CEUs, uh, um, continued education units, like getting more trainings and yeah. Like if you want to be, um, like being kind of just a general practitioner is not as marketable as having a niche or having a certification. And all of this costs a lot of money. 
And like starting a business, you know, like we said earlier, having a private practice is a way to make more money than community mental health, but there's also the cost of maintaining the business. Like, yeah, there's, there's a lot that goes in that goes into this job. And and I don't think people realize that. Yeah. I mean, my employer asks for writing samples for their job applicants, because we literally do so much clinical writing. We have to Hmm. do all of these like assessments and treatment plan documents and whatever. Mm. And and then that goes to this whole other issue of like, you know, what does it mean that I'm trying to prove that my clients deserve mental health care to their insurance provider, to Medicaid, to the state, to the people who are funding my nonprofit. They want to know that my clients are, you know, like mentally ill, quote unquote, enough to need services, but also that they're making progress. And I've got to write a little essay every day proving that they still have depression, but also I'm helping them with their depression. But no, 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 they still do need services. A hundred percent, especially I'm just going to say in my old job, there was, I would, I saw a lot of people that were trying to get disability for, uh, especially for mental illness, but also for physical ailments. And it was like this constant, like, how do we prove that you're sick? You know? Um, and, but also you're making some progress, but that still doesn't mean that you're able to work. And it's like, you know, and of course the state picks it apart and it's a whole mess. Um, and they just like, oh yeah, you could just, you know, you could still work. It's fine. And it's like, no, this, this person has severe PTSD. They're not leaving the house at this point. Um, so it's, yeah, it's this like constant, like got to fill this thing out. You've got to write to this person. You've got to, I mean, you do a lot of, I, I don't know how much charting doctors do, but I felt like most of my day was done with charting. Um, if I wasn't seeing a client, I was trying to catch up on all of this paperwork. Well, doctors have scribes sometimes. That's true. Their their documentation for them and they don't do their own billing. (laughs) So yeah, I mean, it's finding that balance between like, no, this person is, is struggling enough to need services, but the services I'm giving are beneficial. Well, if they're beneficial, then maybe they don't need them anywhere. No, wait, they still need them. And having to like write it exactly in the right way so that you can mm-hmm. continue getting, getting the funding. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is part of our political position as social workers and mental health workers is that we're navigating a really messed up healthcare system, right? We're navigating a for-profit healthcare system. And if you're in community mental health, you're in between that as well as the state, as well as the nonprofit industrial complex, right? Like it's just this horrible position to be where it's like, I spend so much of my time trying to meet the compliance standards and provide the stuff that they need so that they can present the data to the funders, to the this, to the that. And it's really a waste of time. It's really more than anything Mm -hmm. counterproductive to helping people. Um, But we don't live in a society that automatically says that everybody deserves mental health care and everybody includes poor people Mm -hmm. or other marginalized folks. 
our society doesn't automatically guarantee that. So these are the hoops that we jump through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, you've worked now, of course, in a place where there's a union, being a part of a union, but I'm assuming you've also worked in places where there wasn't, mm-hmm. um, other than the, the sort of standards of like, this is what we get paid. These are our benefits. Um, what other things do you notice being different in your experience? Yeah. I mean, there's, I have like a chart in my mind that I wish I could pull up called the union difference where it's right. What's the difference between working in a non-union workplace and the difference between working in a union workplace. And there really are so many because as a unionized worker, I have just, I have a say in anything and I have a pathway to make change at every single turn. Right. So, you know, from things like transparency and pay equity to just being able to ask for stuff and having an avenue to get that. So, right. We're still in the midst of a global pandemic, right. Pandemic hits what happens. So lots of workplaces, furlough workers, there are layoffs, places shut down, places go remote. They develop these remote workplace policies, whatever. Right. I'm as the union leader, a part of all of that for my workplace. So, right, when there were furloughs and layoff, I was notified before the workers were. (laughs) And when there was a program closure, I negotiated the terms of that closure and helped them make sure that people got severance, right, or things like that, right? Um, When it comes to work from home policies, right, like my, in like June or like June, I don't know, I think, honestly, I think it was like maybe like May 2020, they started talking about us coming back. And they set this delay of July 1st, we'll be in person. And we were like, what for who? And they were like, any client who wants to come. And we were like, who wants to come in person? Well, people might request it and we will be you know, honoring their request, right? So now I have the right through my union to form a health and safety committee and shut it down, which we did, right? Like, it was just like, no, we're not gonna see clients. you know. And like, I was like, I'm sorry, I work with teens. Like they are telling, you know what I mean? Like. These are people, right? Their frontal lobes are developing. They are making risky decisions, which is developmentally appropriate. And we love them. And also, right, my clients are partying and, you know, passing around a bottle of vodka and sharing joints and whatever Mm -hmm. and living their life how they want to live it. And they're going to come into my office and my, you know, in my tiny office. And And like, (laughs) Even now, depending on where they go to school, <clears throat> Kentucky, um, they may not even be required to wear masks. So now they're just, you know, being exposed and bringing it into your office and also right. exposing anyone else that comes into that office that people mm-hmm. with, you know, chronic pain and chronic conditions. Um, so yeah, it's like, no, let's let's not do that. That was tw- May 2020. Like that's pretty early. Yeah, early. talking about it like right away. They were like, yeah, July 1st, we'll be back in person. Oh like it was nuts. Yeah, I think there was, you know, different communities have different attitudes. And I think that some of the communities that my organization serves like felt like this was more important than their perceptions of safety. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. So it's, it's hard. And then, but I think it worked out, but right. As, as a, a person in a union workplace, I'm constantly getting ahead of issues, 
and mm-hmm. constantly organizing, right? So we negotiated a contract in 2019. We'll negotiate again at the end of the year and I'm already preparing. But even in between that, I'm like, okay, what do we need to do? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, what are the issues that are coming up? Um, it's a lot. That's really cool that you're, that, that you're being, that you're a part of that. I mean, and that you have, I mean, that's also quite a responsibility, you know, for everyone, because that's the other thing, like we said, you know, unions help even people not in unions by raising the pay base, but also by enforcing these policies and kind of speaking out for, okay, what's best for your employees? What's, let's get perspective from the people that are actually doing the direct service jobs, actually doing the jobs and actually having to follow these policies. What are they noticing? Where, where are the gaps? Because the people in middle management or upper management are not seeing it the same way because they're just not doing the same things all day. Mm-hmm. Um, so when a policy makes sense to, you know, three or two or one person, depending on the the organization, sometimes it's very small and sometimes there's one person calling those shots, um, but that doesn't make sense to everyone else who's having to actually serve the community. Yeah. yeah. I think the other, another big difference between working in a union and a non-union job is the sense of community and the relationships. Like, so my workplace union is it's now like 750 people. It used to be like a thousand, but they cut programs. So it's like 750 people across four nonprofits, across 50 sites. Some of them are out of state. <laughs> so, right. That's huge, right? Most are in the Chicagoland area, but like, it's really quite spread out. And so there's a lot of people I would never have met who work in my same nonprofit, who maybe who even do my exact same job, but out of like, this counseling office instead of that one, right? I maybe would have never met them. Mm-hmm. And especially during the pandemic, I think having that community has been so valuable. Mm. And a lot of people, I don't know, I'm not like, I don't know, how do you guys relate to your coworkers, right? Like it's, it's weird. It's like, we're in this thing together, but sometimes it's like, yeah, I see you every day, but we're not friends. And sometimes it's like, we're best friends. And when you're in a union, it's like, we're in this together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's so valuable. I, I've really been missing that since COVID, like, you know, everyone's working from home. Like, I don't see my coworkers ever. I don't even know some of them exist. Mm -hmm. Um, so like having that, um, connection Mm -hmm. past just like, oh, we work together and we share office space or whatever, like where you're actually working with these people to like, for like the betterment of your, of your lives, of your day-to-day for the betterment of your profession. Like you have this joint, um, cause that probably really pulls you together, makes you feel supported and like, you're not alone. And that's amazing. Yeah, it is (laughs) really, it's a really special opportunity. Yeah. There is a lot of, um, just a a little bit of a segue, but like there is a lot of, I think maybe misinformation or just like unhelpful stereotypes about unions, people that are not in them or um, 
certain generations that view unions as one particular thing. Um, and so like, what would you say, I'm sure you, you probably hear some of that criticism from people. Um, what are some of the things you hear and sort of how do you respond to that? How do you sort of defend what you do to people that are like, we don't need unions anymore? Yeah, I think that's a really good question, especially like my, right. I just told you my, my union that Mm -hmm. what my contract covers is 750 people and we're basically a third of them are required to be in the union and then two thirds are not, and it's optional. So we're in a very complicated situation. The people who are required to be in the union are people in clerical jobs, we have some like nursing homes and residential facilities. So it's like the dining services staff, the CNAs, um, the direct disability service providers who work in residential homes. Like it's, yeah, it's just like it's those positions and the people who aren't required but are eligible are social workers, early childhood teachers. And we run a therapeutic day school. We have development associates. We have people who do community programs. So it's what's really interesting is that it kind of sets up this divide that we talked about before about who unions are for. When you look at the demographics, the people who are required to be in the union are the people who um, their jobs don't require a BA or an MA. They're more like, like the demographics, they tend to be more people of color, more immigrants than the people who it's optional or it's much more predominantly to like white professionalized people. So We do have people who say, oh no, the union is for them. And it's a little bit, right? It's it's a little bit like, oh, it's for the person who I see as poor, the Mm. person who I see as struggling. And I don't want to see myself as struggling because I have a master's, right? It's like my coworkers, right? They some of them went to University of Chicago, they went to Northwestern University, went to these prestigious places. Some of them are from wealthier communities. So maybe they're not worried about money. I don't know. A lot of people in nonprofits complain about money no matter where they're from, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't matter if they come from money. They're still like, why am I making this? Um, but, right, a lot of people do see unions are for this type of worker. And since their job is not reflected in that vision, they don't see that it's also for them. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of that in my workplace. And I think it's a lot of unlearning that we have to do about who unions are for. And there's a lot of fears that um, being in a union means that you must hate your job and you must hate your boss and you're going to be in a fight with your boss. And that's what it's about, right? People like, right. They're like, but I like my job. It's like, great. Me too. Mm-hmm. That's why we need a union. Cause right. You talked about how much turnover there is in community mental health. Who's that good for? <laughs> Tell yeah. me that benefits. Um, you know, and being, I have coworkers, sometimes I am shocked when they say this. I'll have coworkers where I'm like, they're not even involved in the union. And they'll be like, I've stayed here for the past two years just because of the union. I wanted to quit two years ago and the union kept me here. Like it actually keeps people here because they feel connected to their workplace. They feel more empowered. Like they have an avenue to make things better. Right. But when you go in with that assumption that like, oh, if I, you know, like my job, I don't need a union that it's really not true. It's not about hating your job or hating your boss. And especially if you work in some places are so big and bureaucratic that it's like, yeah, I asked my supervisor for a raise. I tried that first. It didn't work. 
right? She was like, I'll go to my boss. They'll go to HR. They said, you aren't qualified to make more than $34,000. You know what I mean? Like, that's exactly what happened. But organizing did get me a raise. Mm -hmm. So it just, right. Like my boss probably actually likes the union because she's so much in middle management that she doesn't have the power to do anything anyway. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's better for her that I'm sticking around and getting myself a raise through organizing rather than complaining and walking out the door when she can't give me what I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. So what is the process? Like what, what is the process of advocating for something such as a race? Like, what does that look like? Um, so for anything a union gets, it's, it's really all about organizing and building member power. So, right. I'll tell my coworkers, our power is in numbers, right? Mm -hmm. There's only one CEO, but there could be hundreds of us. So basically when it comes down to it is we need to be able to legitimately threaten a strike or some kind of work stoppage. We don't have to do it. They just need to know that we can. Mm. So, you know, hopefully we don't want to strike, right? But we need enough members who are active and involved so that we can do that. So I've done a ton of workplace actions. I will also say my pay has been corrected through organizing. <laughs> And my salary has gone up $18,000. When I started organizing, my salary one night went up $8,000 overnight. Literally, I was like, I asked for a raise two months ago and you told me there was no money. And now suddenly like, oh, look, the union's getting busy. Oh, wow. All these people in counseling are especially busy with the union. What's going on? Now and ma money magically appeared. Yeah, right? <laughs> so some manager who I don't even know passed out letters saying like, oh, we did some restructuring um, and we, you know, everybody's getting a raise. I was like, where did this number come from? What is this? <laughs> She's mm -hmm. like, I don't know who makes decisions. So, so yeah, I mean, this stuff works and I know it works because my salary was $34,000 and then two years later it was $52,000 and that's a life-changing difference. Mm -hmm. um, so ways that organizing works. I mean, first, just like literally my union was at a place where I just had to sign up members and start talking to them. So just signing up members, um, we did actions. There was an employee appreciation party. And I like went to the party in a union t-shirt and like passed out buttons, like board members were there. It was like on company time. So, and there was like an employee of the year who was wearing a union button and like was in the photo with the CEO and like, you know, so we did actions like that. We did, we did petitions during union negotiations. We collected testimonials from workers and then just read them out loud for like an hour. And they were, some of them were horrible. Like there was a worker who said that he sold plasma to like make enough money, you know, like people wrote about like how they work other jobs and like the things that they do to get by. Some people wrote about like, you know, just the, I mean, like you guys have seen it in community mental health, right? Like, what does it mean if I'm a kid's third therapist in eight months? And this is a kid who's in the child welfare system and has literally been neglected by their parents. Mm -hmm. And now, right, they've been shuffled around homes. Well, now you're also shuffled around therapists. Mm -hmm. That's not healthy, right? Like 
right. really spelling out how it impacts the clients is very important because mm-hmm. the managers in these workplaces will always pit the workers against the clients, right? We can't give you this because then there's lesser resources for the clients, patients, students, community members, whatever, right? Like they actually in negotiations try to like take away, we have a grievance procedure, which is how we enforce the contract. If there's a contract violation, we can use this legal procedure to make management follow the contract. Um, And the lawyer was like, oh, when you do all this, you know, then the organization has to pay me the lawyer. And even though I offer reduced fees, that's money they should be, you know, putting towards the client resources in the community. I was like, really? You're saying that the union shouldn't be active because then they have to pay, the workplace has to pay a lawyer? Like, <laughs> like it like made no sense. Um, Knowing that they have a lawyer probably on retainer anyways, because almost every business does for those legal reasons, especially if you're carrying like malpractice insurance and stuff. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's just, that's some bull for real. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of, yeah. Pitting, pitting workers against the clients or the community members. And a lot of workers buy into that. Um, We had someone who say she didn't think ethically she could join a union because she's a social worker and she should be putting the client first. And in her mind, that meant that she can't join a union which is really not true. (laughs) It's just really not, that's not what our code of ethics says. Mm -hmm. There are things that are wrong with our code of ethics. And I think the social work code of ethics does say things like you should work pro bono and volunteer your time. It says stuff like that. And that's a problem because we deserve to get paid for our time. But our code of ethics also tells us that we should be advancing social justice. Mm -hmm. I actually think it is my moral obligation (laughs) to be in a union because I think I'm making the workplace better so that the workers can do better by the clients. Right. Yeah. I mean, like you said a minute ago, the turnover rates with poor, low pay, poor working conditions, turnover rates are so high and that is not good for the client. Like you have you have clients in community mental health, particularly who have had so many like attachment injuries, you know, like people who they have just attached to, and then they've been betrayed by or been abandoned by over and over again. And then they meet this therapist and they're like, wow, this therapist cares about me. This therapist really wants to help me. And they form this really great relationship, especially a child, for example, who may not even understand that that relationship will eventually come to an end. And then the therapist is, is not getting paid, not getting proper benefits and says, well, I deserve better and leaves. And then it's just another, you know, just another abandonment. The client feels another sense of abandonment. And yeah, I think that they like manipulate us. They like, and they, you know, the fact that it's like a feminized, all of these are feminized feels. They, it's like, they're playing upon our, like, as women are like, us being socialized to be nurturing and put, put other people first, put the client first. And, you know, they know, they know that and they're, they're using that and they're getting away with it. Right. Or the assumption that we all have rich husbands, Mm. (laughs) right? Like, like you're a woman, you don't need to make money. 
Mm-hmm. You got right, like, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is not true. Um, yeah, but it's and the thing is, people notice when there's that level of turnover, right? It's not just that it's like bad in that one, you know, client therapist relationship. It's like, well, now there's this client is put back on the wait list for six months. You know, and now people are, you know, when someone's like, how come I've had three therapists in a year? Like, even if I have been able to transfer to someone else, right? Like we do client feedback surveys and the clients will write things like, will you guys pay your workers enough so they can stay? (laughs) Like, what is going on that therapists seem to leave all the time, right? (laughs) Notice it's embarrassing. Yeah, it's it's embarrassing. (laughs) It is. I, I, in the place I worked previously, there was a lot of turnover and I was there for about three years before I finally left. But, um, there was just a lot of turnover because of pay. That was really the, everything else was pretty much fine. They just were not moving on the pay. And, um, and so I would get a lot of clients that would be transferred to me from other therapists. And there was one client who had gone through, five therapists in two years and I was going to be her sixth. And she was like, I don't, I don't understand. She goes, I know it's not me, but like at some point I start to think it's me. And I'm like, I understand that. I'm like, I can tell you having known you now, it's not you for sure. And, and, um, and like, I just, you know, they're like, why, why do people leave? Why, Why are they always, they're always a new therapist. And I'm like, we can't really get into that right now, (laughs) but I will tell you that that is something that happens a lot in community mental health. And it's just a flaw in the system that happens. And, um, it's something that needs to change, but you're absolutely right. It starts to look really embarrassing. Um, and then there are certain places, sorry, there are certain places that get a reputation for that. And I'm thinking of, one in particular in Louisville and anyone who lives and works in Louisville will know exactly which one I'm thinking of. Um, and it's community mental health place. And it has had a reputation for as long as I've known way before I was in this field of, oh, people don't stay there. They won't stay. People go, they get their supervision hours and then they leave like everyone, two years max and then they're out. And it's like, why, what doesn't, doesn't the company ever look at this and go, I think we're doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. Nobody they think they're just so years. used to it. Like it's just normal. Like they're just so used to it. And the fact that people are asking like why, like they don't, it just shows how this issue is just not, no one knows about it. Or if they know about it, they just don't care about it. It's just so normalized. Yeah, no, they, sometimes it almost feels like they encourage it, right? Mm -hmm. Like I was told by a career advisor at my grad school to go work at the place that I'm working at now. And he said, it's a great place to start your career, get your license and leave. And you can go work anywhere. It's like, they provide great supervision and training. Right. And when I got there, my coworkers were like, oh yeah, we don't need to be paid. We're paid in supervision and training. Right. Because how deeply sad that unlicensed clinicians get jobs at community mental health agencies that don't even provide that. And they have to pay outside people <laughs> for, right, the clinical supervision to get their license, right? But yes. we're supposed to be grateful that they just provide that, like the basic mm-hmm. level of supervision. So 
which every, <laughs> you know, pr- provisionally licensed clinician needs. It's a part of the job. Anyone mm-hmm. you hire in that, in that field is going to need that. So that should be a, a standard. They should all provide that in some way or reimburse a percentage at least. The fact of- that some places don't is absurd to me. Like yeah. it is. And there's also a lot of places where it just seems to be that it's another like turnover thing, right? Where they'll be like, oh yeah, we'll have a, you know, LCSW on staff who can supervise you. Oh wait, she's, she just left. Um, let me see if there's anyone else around. Um, we'll find someone to sign off on your hours soon. Six months go by. You know what I mean? Like I've right. had and you have come to- in who are like, I'm three years post-grad, but I'm not licensed because I have not found a job that has followed through on their promise to like supervise me. It's crazy. And all of that has to be reported to the board, which takes forever to hear back from. And so it's like, if, if your supervisor's changing, that is putting you behind as well in clinical hours. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's a, I mean, of course it's a systemic thing. It's, it's starting at the top and it's affecting all of the workers all the way down into the clients, which is then affecting the community. I mean, so, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense. Why are there not more mental health unions? Um, why is that not more common? At least, like I said, where I'm at, I've not heard of that in this field. So it definitely seems like there's a need there in, in ironically rural communities where unions have been so, so important historically, it's almost like they're starting to get away from that. Like, oh, we don't need them now. Like, well, things haven't gotten much better for you guys here in 50 years. So maybe you do need unions, but, you know. Yeah, I mean, and even if like, it it doesn't stop. I don't think it's ever, I don't think it's something that's ever done. Like, it's not something you just don't need anymore. You know, maybe like, I don't think we're even close. It means Mm -hmm. something you don't need anymore. Even if it has improved. Yeah. I mean, right. Of course, working conditions in America have improved since there have been child labor laws, since Mm -hmm. we now have fire escapes and you can't (laughs) lock people in a factory overnight and start a fight. Right. Like, right. There's like, yeah, it's like many workplaces aren't as dangerous or abusive anymore. Many, right. They're still dangerous workplaces. (laughs) And I think what happened with the pandemic is suddenly a lot of jobs suddenly felt very dangerous Mm -hmm. for the first time. Right. And then the frontline jobs, mm-hmm. right. It's like, it is still those like meat factories, but also restaurant workers and or all kinds of workers suddenly were teachers, people who work in schools, hospitals, nurses, all of those people were suddenly in a very high risk situation, but it's the labor movement that fought for the basics, right? A 40 hour work week, a lunch break, paid sick time. We're still fighting for parental leave, right? Maternity right. leave is not necessarily even the norm mm-hmm. in the United States. I wonder. So I'm thinking about like corporate jobs that pay their workers really well, and they're jobs that you maybe wouldn't expect would need a union, but some of those have really toxic cultures. For example, they're uh, very, uh, there's a lot of sexism that happens and a lot of like sexual harassment, a lot of like 
women getting assaulted at work events and no one giving a shit. And I, I'm, I'm wondering if that could fall under, like, if that's something that a union could help with. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, potentially. I think there's right. Unions aren't just for low wage workers. Yeah. Like I've said, even though it's the sad truth is that you and me and all the people we graduated with, a lot of us are, or have been low wage workers, even though we had our fancy master's degrees and our fancy license and this and that, right. We were low wage workers, but there are people, first of all, there are nurses and teachers who make six figures or in unions, right. Mm -hmm. There are. So those, I guess it, if you think of six figures as a good salary that there are union workers there, there's a lot of organizing happening in the tech industry. And basically anything is on the table when it comes to organizing. Right. Yeah. Right. Cause you tend to think, like, you tend to think of it as like raises or like working conditions, but I think that really can be expanded to like working conditions can include like sexual harassment policies or like things that you maybe typically wouldn't think of, but there's, there are so many ways, like there's like racism in the workplace. There's so many ways to have a unhealthy or unaccepting or unsafe workplace. Um, and, you know, especially after this conversation, I really hope that that can be expanded into all fields really. Cause like all fields could use an improvement in some way or have some sort of injustice in some way. Yeah, I think when it comes to organizing, it's it can be easy to look around and say like, oh, I want to plug into this thing, right? So like, right, maybe Black Lives Matter, I want to plug into defund the police. I totally believe in that, right? We'll start with your own workplace. Mm -hmm. What is my workplace relationship with the police? Oh, well, I found out that we run a therapeutic day school and sometimes when kids get dysregulated, the police get called on them. I found that out, right? So it's like, okay, my CEO, you can put out a statement that says our organization agrees that Black Lives Matter and that police violence is bad, but what are you doing to change a system where in our own workplace, people are calling the cops on kids? What is happening, right? So I think any type of social issue that you care about, look at what it looks like in your home, in your community, in your workplace. Mm -hmm. That's really good advice. Yeah. Yeah. Cause like you said, it'll, it'll expand. Like you, you start in your own, your own communities and where you're connected and it'll and I think there's also a lot, right? Once we build worker power, there's a lot of outward facing stuff we can do, right? So I was talking about the nonprofit industrial complex and our, you know, the mental health care system and all the things that are wrong with that. Well, if thousands and thousands and thousands of community mental health care workers were organized into a union, what kind of advocacy and organizing could we do about things outside of our workplace, right? National Nurses United, that union, organizes for Medicare for all. Shouldn't we do that? Right? <laughs> Shouldn't mental health care workers also be in that fight so that everyone can have health care insurance and so we don't have to jump through hoops to help our clients get services? Yes. Or like, you know, Chicago Teachers Union and other teachers unions have done really great stuff too. The Chicago Teachers Union in, I want to say 2019, went on strike for a nurse 
a social worker and a librarian in every Chicago public school. That was one of their demands for their strikes, right? Is that one of the, does it affect their working conditions? Sure, right? Because a third grade teacher is trying to put a Band-Aid on a kid and teach a class. And was it already a nurse or a librarian and every, that surprises me. I really thought nurses were, there was always a nurse in a school, but I guess not. Wow. No, that is crazy. Yeah. Not in Chicago public schools. Um, I don't, I don't know about other schools. I'm sure some schools, yes, some schools no. But the way in social workers in Chicago public schools, it was like, oh, one social worker is split between three different schools and they're here this day and then they're mm-hmm. there that day. Right. So, but obviously, you know, accidents or mental health crises or whatever can happen on any day. Doesn't, they don't wait for when the nurse is in the school. Mm-hmm. They don't wait for when the social workers in the building. Wow. Um, so they used their power as workers to organize for resources for the schools. And I think what's really problematic about our current community mental health care system, and it was kind of mind blowing when someone explained this to me was that our job should be public sector jobs, right? Does, do other types of healthcare work this way? No, right? like, like these should be public sector jobs. Instead, it's basically we live in a country in a society that doesn't think that people deserve human rights, including mental health care. So the government provides nearly nothing. And then we've got philanthropists who swoop in and fund these nonprofits. And but, you know, they decide what they care about. Right. It's like at the end of the day, the wealthy people don't really want to change the entire system. So it works for everybody. They want to pat themselves on the back and say, yay, I signed a check and (laughs) went to a nice charity of my choice. And then wrote it off on my taxes. (laughs) Right. Right. So nothing is going to get solved in the nonprofit system. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I, you and your listeners can do more reading on the nonprofit industrial complex. And there's great, you know, the revolution will not be funded is a really great resource for that about why organizing and social change isn't going to happen through the nonprofit system because the people who fund it aren't invested in it happening. Um, but if mental health care was in the public sector, we'd also have a lot more organizing power because public sector unions are organizing for funding in the city, state, and federal budget. Right. Mm-hmm. So if we were talking about something like, right, defund the police makes a lot of sense for social workers to care about. Right. Mm-hmm. As if I, I don't even want to know how much Chicago police department, is. <laughs> right. It's like, it's like millions and billions of dollars goes to the Chicago police department. How much money goes to the schools? How much money mm-hmm. goes to these community mental health care agencies? Nothing. Right. Um, so yes, defund the police and fund social service agencies or necessary public goods. But we don't really, even though we have a stake in that fight, we don't really, because we're privatized out to these little nonprofits spread out in different places. Um, but if we were public sector, we could have a say over the budget and organize around, no, don't fund this, fund us, fund mm-hmm. this community, fund these needs. Um, it really, the whole nonprofit system really works against us in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I've always, always felt that way working in nonprofit. I was like, there's gotta be a better way. Like it seemed so uh, meaningless. Some of the work we did because it just, it, it just seemed like you never got anywhere. And, and that was sort of the way the system was set up. But, you know, you saying that now, like, yeah, I, 
yeah, why aren't we in the private sector? I never even considered that. Um, and again, kind of like Emily was saying, like it just has become so normalized. And so it's good to have discussions like these and it's hopefully, you know, people listening, whether they're in mental health or not, can start to think of unions in a different way and start to look at things like, okay, well, how can this benefit where we're at? And in what ways can this help start lasting change um, that is going to be better for everybody? I mean, you raise one person up, you're, you're helping everyone else as well. It's not just a, you know, me, me, me thing. It's like, no, this is good this is good for us, but this is good for everyone. Everyone should be doing this. Everyone should be paid a living wage and everyone should have healthcare and everyone should, you know, this, these things that of course we're talking about, we're like, duh, but it's not the norm here. Mm -hmm. It's not the norm in, in the U S yet we're holding out, but we'll see. (laughs) Yeah. So I can talk about a bit of some budding organizations that I think are going to help with this culture shift. Cause I think in the first move is just changing the culture and changing the conversation and moving past what's been normalized. Mm-hmm. Right. That, Oh, right. If anyone ever says to you, well, you didn't get into it for the money, give them the finger because that's <laughs> bogus. Right. Like, well, actually this is a job. So I do it for the money. <laughs> Right. I thought that was fun, really funny. Yeah. <laughs> this is a job. I do it for money. Right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So it really is. Um, there is a book that's on my list of books to read. And I've listened to some stuff from this author, uh, the author, Sarah Jaffe, and the book is called Work Won't Love You Back. And right. It's we are so conditioned to think like, oh, I just love my job and I'm doing it because I'm passionate about it. That is so beautiful and nice. And you can do that. And also your job is not passionate about you Mm -hmm. and doesn't love you and doesn't care about you. And it's not going to pay your bills and it's not going to help you when you're sick. And (laughs) so we need to understand that it's jobs aren't just here to be fulfilling and nice that we do them to pay the bills and to survive. Right. The reason Mm -hmm. everyone works is for money. Mm -hmm. I mean, let's just not pretend like that. (laughs) Otherwise, if, why would we, you know, um, things would be volunteer and, and life would be very different, but yeah, it's obviously everyone is in it for the money ultimately, because we have to live, we have to feed ourselves. We have to take care of our families. So. All right. Until we get universal basic income or whatever. Yeah, we're all in it for the money. Um, yeah, so there are a handful of organizations across the states. The one I'm part of is here in Chicago. It's called Social Service Workers United. Um, it's a pretty informal group. Um, it started um, actually while I was in grad school. Some of my friends in grad school, social work students. Um, and it's really basically about exactly what we're talking about, organizing in the field of social work and social services, organizing in community mental health care, whether that's organizing for labor unions or organizing around issues that we all care about, organizing to change the culture in our workplace, helping connect people to why should someone who works in social work or social services care about defund the police or you know any of these other issues, right? Like boring stuff tax reform we should care we actually should care about the city budget or taxing the rich or you know things like that because 
we're relying on state dollars to an extent and mm -hmm. we're told there aren't enough of them to go around. And frankly, that's a lie. It's a political choice not to fund mental health care mm -hmm. or social services. That's a political choice. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm in this group in Chicago. Um, there are groups, let's see, New York City, Boston, Austin, Texas, Baltimore, um, somewhere in Michigan, I think LA, they're all over the country and they're coming up. Um, I'm constantly hearing about more of them. Um, there's yeah, a lot of organizing happening. And I think, you know, because of the pandemic, we've all kind of found each other online <laughs> connected. Um, and I've been lucky enough to have the opportunity to facilitate some kind of like labor 101s on nonprofits, labor 101s for social workers, and met people across the country who have been doing this work. This is also really cool. So we brushed past this, but right, the reasons social workers are conditioned from grad school to do unpaid work through unpaid internships mm -hmm. that we are required to do for graduation, right? We pay thousands of dollars of tuition and are required three days a week to work unpaid. I don't know if you guys had paid internships. I did not. Supposedly they're out there somewhere, but majority, mm -hmm. no. Um, the University of Michigan School of Social Work in Ann Arbor started this campaign that's like, I, I don't know exactly what it's called. It's like pay our interns or something. And it's basically like School of Social Work students mm -hmm. at University of Michigan are like, please figure out a way for us to get paid. And this is, that is a huge issue in the field yes. that we rely, right? Like social services, social work, nonprofits, and it just isn't even social work interns. It's right. It's AmeriCorps volunteers and mm -hmm. summer internships for college students is this, is that right? So much unpaid work that goes into building a career in this sector and to maintaining this work, it relies on unpaid labor. And um, they just like jazz it up and then they'll be like, oh, look at this great opportunity to, to work with these, these clients and have this amazing support from this community. And it's like, you can make it sound all beautiful and flowery, but essentially this is unpaid labor. Yep. Yeah. And then in reality, you're also still working a job to pay to live while doing grad school and doing this unpaid internship for most people. I mean, you know, so yeah, it's it, well, and I've said this, like, I think all of the requirements sort of, um, that go into becoming a social worker or working in the mental health field are very classist in and of themselves, mm -hmm. because unless if your mom and dad can support you while you go to school full-time and work an unpaid internship, great, but not a lot of people can do that. And especially what about the rich husband that we all have, right? Yes. <laughs> or your rich husband can. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And also like, like you said, you shell out all this money, um, initially for supervision and for CEUs and for taking the test and for test prep and for paying for the licensure and just all this stuff. Um, after you've gone in debt, paying for college and grad school. So it's like, <laughs> I, you know what? I mean, I'm a professional with a master's degree and I qualify for a lot of social services programs because mm -hmm. of income level. And that, that doesn't make any sense. Like why, 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 why is it like that? <laughs> I don't know. So, but yeah, it's, it's just very classless in and of itself, especially if you are from a lower income family or you are a person of color and you're 
trying to become a social worker, good luck. They make and it really, literally really difficult. what this field stands for. Like yeah. this field stands for social justice. And meanwhile, it's part of the problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is why everything is like, you've got to look within, right? Mm -hmm. Like before you go out and say, I'm going to go to DC and tell them, blah, blah, blah. Look within your own community, within Mm -hmm. your own workplace. Are you living up to the values that you say? And now it's a huge, it's honestly a huge strength that we have as organizers in these workplaces is that we can point out and like, let me read your nonprofit mission Mm -hmm. statement. Let me read your, right? like, let me read this and ask you, do you do this? Right? Like whatever it is, cause they all sound the same, right? Mm-hmm. It's all about, you know, like wellness and, you know, enriching lives and a holistic approach and fulfilling lives and blah, blah, blah. Right. It's like, well, what about me? What mm-hmm. about my life? Just cause I work here. Does that mean that I, I don't deserve these things too? <laughs> yeah. Um, the other place that I will suggest your listeners go to for um, resources on organizing, there is an amazing organization that popped up in March 2020. Um, can figure out why. Um, it's called Emergency Workplace Organizing Committee or EWOC. So they came out of DSA, which is Democratic Socialists of America, and UE, which is the Union of Electrical Workers. Um, They came together as a partnership to form EWOC and basically just responded to what workers were needing during the pandemic, right? Workers being like, suddenly my job feels extremely unsafe. What do I do? How do I organize around this? And I got plugged in because at that time I was in leadership in Chicago's labor branch of Democratic Socialists of America. Um, And so I got kind of plugged in right away. Um, And this organization has grown immensely in the past two years. And they do these amazing trainings on union organizing. If you go to their website, I think it's just like workerorganizing.com or something, emergency workplace organizing committee. (laughs) I'll just say it again because I don't know the website (laughs) off the top of my head. It basically started as like a Google form. It was like, fill out this form, give us your contact information, tell us like what issues you're going through at work. And then an experienced labor organizer will just call you and talk you through what to do. That's amazing. Like talk people through, like, how do you talk to your coworkers about this? Like, how, you know, how do you build a campaign around this workplace issue and unions have come out of it or just wins, right? You don't have to have a union to organize in your workplace. Mm-hmm. Any of us can do it, right? You all can come together with your coworkers and say, wow, my, you know, Emily, you're saying maybe people should organize around like sexual harassment issues or racial equity issues, right? Like you can come to go out there with your coworkers and say, wow, our workplace has a diversity problem and we're a racist institution and we want to change that. And here are our list of demands. And you could do that. (laughs) You could bring that to your boss, right? You Mm -hmm. could organize without a union and you could win stuff. That's amazing. Thank you so much. Um, Yeah, I mean- uh, so I'll, I'll post, um, all of the resources. So if, if, if everyone didn't I'll get all of that, yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, but yeah, I think we, uh, we'll wrap up for today, but thank you so much for being here and for all the work you do and yeah. like for teaching us so much, like 
I feel like I learned so much from this conversation Mm -hmm. and I really appreciate just like on behalf of other mental health professionals and social workers, like, thank you from the bottom of my heart for the work that you do. And the passion that you have for it. You can tell that you're very passionate about what you do and you care a lot and (laughs) that's awesome. So yeah, thank you for being our guest. I'm happy to talk about my favorite topic. (laughs) All right. That's our show. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow us on wherever you get your podcasts. And we would also appreciate a rating and review. And don't forget to follow the show's Instagram for updates on new episodes at just mental health podcasts. And that's with a period between each of those words. This is Steph. And M. And Lily. Signing off. Thanks for listening.